Pastor John is on the way to the Philippines right now as we speak to help train some pastors there. Um, so he'll be there for the next couple of weeks, so please be praying uh, for him. Uh, so if you would, open your Bible or your Bible app with me uh, to the book of Psalms. I'm so excited to kick off our Psalms of the Season uh, sermon series together this morning. And we'll be starting in Psalm chapter 63, Psalm chapter 63. Uh, my daughter Priya, who many of you have met, she is two years old. And she's kind of, she, about a year or a year and a half ago, she kind of had started to begin asking questions as she was learning to talk. And she would walk around her known world at the time, a.k.a. our apartment, and she would just point at things, and she would ask, what is this? Right? And we'd have to answer the question, well, this is the remote, and that controls the TV. That's a TV. This is a toy. This is a toy car. And so she would kind of walk around exploring, and she wanted to know what everything was. Well, just recently, she's kind of advanced now to the next stage, um, and now she's asking, what is this for? Or the way she puts it, what do? <laughs> what does this thing do? Now that I know what it is, what does it do? Right now that she's identified that object, she wants to know what its purpose is. And you parents who are farther along than me, you know that the next question coming soon is why. <laughs> I'm not really looking forward to that phase, but I know it's coming. Why? But that's an important question to ask, not just for two-year-olds, but for us as well. Why are you here? And I don't just mean right now, right here in this building. I mean, why did God create us? Why do we as people exist? What is our purpose? What were, what were we made to do? Well, if you've been at Hallmark over the last few years, you know that uh, around this time of year, we, we tend to do a series through the Psalms. And so this year, we are continuing that tradition with a little bit of a different twist. This year, as we walk through the Psalms, we're going to look at worship. We're going to focus on worship throughout the book of Psalms. And the reason why goes back to that why question. See, as Christians, we believe that you were created on purpose for a purpose. And fundamentally, that purpose, the Bible teaches, is that we were created to worship God. Human beings, we are designed to be worshiping beings, but we must worship the right person. You know, it's interesting how we live in a time when we have more money with more stuff, we have more access to better things than at any time in history, but anxiety, depression, suicide, they're off the charts when we compare ourselves with previous generations. Why is that? It's because we have mistaken our purpose. We have forgotten the reason for which we were created. We have believed the lies of the world that says you were created to consume. You were created to be comfortable. You were created to enjoy. You were created to fulfill yourself through pleasure, through the things of this world. But that's not what God created us for. God designed us as people. We are created to enjoy him. We are created to take pleasure in him. We are created to be fulfilled through him. And when we miss that, we miss the purpose for which we were created, which boils down to worship. And so if worship is so fundamental, then I think it's important that we have a common understanding of what worship is. One of the unfortunate byproducts of American Christian lingo is that we've reduced the word worship to only equal music. 
Right? If you're talking with a, a friend that goes to church and maybe they've said to you, oh, I just love my church so much, they have great worship, culturally we understand that 99% of the time that person is referring to the music portion of the service, right? And while I am thankful that we can and do worship through song and through music and through singing together as a body of believers, that is not all that worship is. Worship is more, it's deeper than that. Our English word worship comes from worth-ship. It's we are putting the worth of God on display. The definition I want us to have this morning is this. Worship is the valuing or treasuring of God above all things. Worship is the valuing or treasuring of God above all things. And so our lives are to be characterized by worship. When we value God so much, when we are so satisfied in him that everything we say, everything we do overflows in loving reaction to that worship and in loving action towards others. And so each of the messages over the next few weeks are going to focus in the book of Psalms on an aspect of worship. And so today, as we look at Psalm chapter 63, we're going to focus on worship through prayer. Worship through prayer. So let me open us up together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to come before you as your people. I pray that you would move our hearts today to truly value you and treasure you above all else and to come before you in prayer, not out of duty, but out of desire. And I ask all these things in your name. Amen. As you look at Psalm chapter 63, David finds himself in the wilderness for the second time in his life on the run being hunted. Last time, when David was a young man, he was being hunted by King Saul, right? King Saul wanted to remove the threat to his dynasty in the throne of Israel, and so he did everything he could in his power to destroy David. Of course, that did not work out, but now, fast forward a couple of decades, and David is a middle-aged man, except this time it's not someone else that's hunting him down outside of his family. Now it's his own son, one of the princes of Israel, Absalom is hunting his own father, David, down. And he forces David to run away into the wilderness, the wilderness of Judah. And it's in this setting that David writes Psalm chapter 63. The wilderness of Judah is said to be one of the most harsh places on the planet. It takes you a long time to find anything green. And so it's in this setting that David writes this psalm, which is primarily a prayer. Now, if I was writing a prayer to God and I was here, just come fresh out of the palace, I might be angry, I might be disappointed, I might ask a lot of why questions. Why, God, are you allowing this to happen to me? And not just happen to me, but this is the second time it's happening to me. Now it's my son that's trying to kill me. Maybe some anger, maybe some doubt over the love of God for me. But as we read through Psalm chapter 63, we see that's not David's heart at all. And we're going to see that even though he is in the wilderness, he is able to worship. Let's read the first eight verses together of Psalm chapter 63. David writes, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. And so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. 
My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. It's here at one of the lowest points of David's life that he turns to God in prayer. Not to accuse him, not out of anger, but out of desire for more of God. You know, no author in the Bible speaks more about joy than David. Much of the language that we use to describe our Christian joy in the Lord comes from David, who wrote a lot of that language when he was running for his life. The Psalms were written through the highs and the lows of David's life, and a lot of his language of joy comes when his life was at its darkest moment. And that's how David shows us the example why he was a man after God's own heart. And so today's message is is called Worship in the Wilderness. And we're going to see that the only way that we can worship in the wilderness is if God is our greatest desire. The only way we can worship in the wilderness is if God is our greatest desire. So first this morning, I want to say that prayer is driven by our desire for God. Prayer is driven by our desire for the Lord. He says in verse 1, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. You see that sense of urgency that David has while he's in the wilderness. He's earnestly seeking the Lord. If you're like me, you probably find, or you struggle to find, an optimal time in your schedule to make time for prayer. It's difficult to make prayer a priority in the hectic, busy schedules of our everyday lives. And yet with David... He's got a pretty hectic schedule right now. He's on the run for his life. His own son is trying to kill him. If if there ever was a time when David could take a day off from praying, I think all of us would give our friends a free pass if we knew they were on the run for their life. And yet it seems like the more wonky David's life is, the more he leans in and presses in to the Lord in prayer. The more he makes his relationship with God a priority. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. How much do you think about water when you're not thirsty? You don't, right? We don't think about it. However, when you're in the 110 degree Texas summer heat, you've been outside all day, you haven't had anything to drink in hours, all of a sudden any sound of a drip, of a drop is like getting your attention, right? Your brain is sending signals to your body that says, hey, you've got to seek out some water, You need something to keep your body hydrated. It needs to keep you alive. That's the language, that's the imagery that David is using for how his soul is longing after God. Not just as, oh, that's a nice to have, that's a good option for me. No, I have to have this if I am going to survive. Thirst for God is a sign of spiritual life. A sign that God is moving and working inside of you is that you have a hunger and you have a thirst for more of him. Right Before we were followers of Christ, we didn't have that desire. It's like us whenever we're just on a normal situation. I'm not craving water. I don't have to have a particular drink right now. But whenever God comes in the picture and God stirs up that desire in your soul, all of a sudden, it's this unquenchable thirst that only God can satisfy. So you thirst when you don't have enough. You faint when your body is depleted of something. And that's the imagery that David uses to describe his desire for the Lord. And as I read it, I had to ask myself, does this truly describe 
the condition of my soul right now. And my soul thirsting, longing, hungering for God. Do I long for it in this dramatic, this intense, urgent way, the way David does here in Psalm 63? And oftentimes, most of the time, I have to confess that it does not. Too many times I find myself distracted, divided in my affections by the things that the world constantly tells us I have to have, I have to seek, I have to attain in order to be happy and satisfied. But you all know the more we pursue those things, the thirstier we get. They never truly satisfy. Yet God calls us to himself and says, hey, if you come, I will satisfy your thirst. God wants us to live satisfied lives, but he has to be the source of that satisfaction. That's why Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In John 7, Jesus stands and cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus says, come to me. Don't go elsewhere. You won't find the answer. You won't find the solution. Jesus calls us to come to him for our souls to be satisfied. David goes on in verse 1, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's how my soul thirsts for you. That's how my flesh faints for you. Dry and weary. I think that's a pretty good description of what the world is offering to us. It's dry, it's weary, but it's always going to be remarketed, repackaged in a new and shiny way. But as soon as you open it up, it's the same tired thing over and over again. Empty promises, right? Wealth, fame, pleasure, comfort, whatever it is, they're empty. They're lies from Satan. They're lies from our culture that tells us, if you have this, then you will be happy. But we all know, no matter what, what new shiny thing we get, ultimately, we will be left wanting more. And that's what Jesus was trying to tell the woman, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's the type of water that Jesus offers, and that's himself. And David, he understands this dynamic. He is simply looking upon the Lord, looking at his character, his power, his glory, and his soul is satisfied. I think one of Satan's go-to tactics, at least in my life, is to keep me so distracted, so busy with life, that I never take a chance to just sit down and be with God. Because Satan knows that if he can keep me busy doing good things, right, working in a job, hanging out with friends, doing whatever else, nothing particularly wrong or evil about those things, but if he can keep me so distracted, keep my affections so divided, I'll never just take the time and let myself feast on the presence and on the person of God. Because Satan knows that that is when we will have true satisfaction. That's when God will show up. That's when God will speak to us. That's when God will move us to action. And so he'll, he'll keep you distracted doing some good stuff. But the best thing is time with God. The best thing is having God himself and experiencing God through your time of prayer with him. The only way we can worship in the wilderness is if God is our greatest desire. And so prayer is driven first by my desire for God. And secondly, prayer is a form of worship. 
David says in verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Again, this is one of those things that I read and I say, man, do I really believe that? Mentally, yeah, I'll, I'll acknowledge, yeah, Jesus is better than life. But is that reflected in the desires of my heart, in the actions, in what I do in my life? Is that reflected by that? And oftentimes in prayer, when we treat prayer as a, as a means to get what we want from God, instead of a means to simply get God himself, we're missing out on what God wants to offer us. Prayer is not the divine vending machine of the Christian life. Prayer is an invitation for us to enter into God's presence and sit with him and be with him and enjoy him. Right? Jesus, God, is the ultimate answer to our prayers. All of the other peripheral things that you and I walked into this room this morning, burdened with, concerned about, worried about, stressed about, all those things God wants us to take to him in prayer. I'm so thankful for that. But the ultimate goal and purpose of prayer is not to check things off of our list. It's to get to know God. It's to be with him and to enjoy him personally. David goes on in verse 4. He says, I will bless you as long as I live. As long as I live. David says that he is in this for the long haul. And he doesn't put any conditions on it. He doesn't say, Lord, I will bless you and I will praise you as long as you give me my throne back. As long as you get me out of this wilderness. As long as you make sure my son doesn't kill me. As long as you get me back to my comfortable palace. David has no conditions on his worship. He has no conditions on his love because God has put no conditions on his love for you. You and I can never do anything good enough to earn God's favor or grace or love, and yet he chose to love us anyway. And what better response to that could there be than to say, God, no matter if I'm in the highs, if I'm in the lows, I'm in the wilderness or the palace, God, I will worship you and praise you no matter where I am. That's the essence of what true worship is. It's independent of your circumstances. It's independent of what's going on in your life because it's all dependent on the person of God. An important question that I came across that kind of shook me as I read it uh, from John Piper said, what if God takes it away? Will I still worship God if God takes blank away from me? My health, a loved one, my job, my comfort, my safety. Will I still worship God even if he takes it away? That's a heavy question, isn't it? But it's a question that all of us have to answer at different seasons of life because God in his grace chooses to bring us through the wilderness in order to draw us closer to him. God's primary desire for you and for me is not that we are only happy. His desire for us is that we are holy. And part of what it means to be holy is that we know God and we love God and we're like him. So will we be like Job no matter what happens to us, we will refuse to curse God and say we will bless the Lord. We'll be like Jeremiah says, even though the, the darkness right now is overwhelming, I know that God's mercies are new every morning. Will we be like Paul and say, though tears would be our food, that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? That's something that you and I can't conjure up on ourselves, all on our own strength. We don't have that inside of us without the presence of God. You and I will not make it through the deserts and difficulties of life just gritting our teeth, saying, you know what, I'm going to do my best, I'm going to try my hardest, I'm going to make it through. 
Friends much stronger, smarter, better people than I have tried to do that, and they failed. What's going to make sure that you and I are able to sustain ourselves through the difficulties and wildernesses of life? It's going to be only the presence and power of God in your life. And so when we, when we say, God, I don't have time for prayer, I don't have time to worship you, to spend time with you. We are not only doing ourselves a disservice, we are compromising the only thing that will make sure that we can make it through this life. God wants you and I to be satisfied. He wants you to make it. He wants you to follow him. And he's given us the power and the tools to do so, and yet we, myself included, so often get distracted, and we forget, and we leave God as an option that's nice to have when we need him, instead of the water that we so desperately need in the desert. David goes on in verse 4. He says, In your name I will lift up my hands. Or as the NLT puts it, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You know, this whole psalm is David praying to the Lord. You know, prayer is fundamental to David's worship and pursuit of God. That's why so many of the psalms are prayers. Over the course of Christian history, uh, the Psalms have not only served as an inspiration for music, but also as a source of prayer. Christians for centuries have turned to the writings of David and used them as their means of inspiration to pray and talk to God. Prayer is a fundamental, foundational portion of worship. And as you read through the Psalms, here it says, lifting up my hands to you in prayer, there's two physical responses that you see over and over and over again in the Psalms. One is kneeling down, and the second one is lifting your hands. Right? There's, there's no magic formula or key to those particular physical actions, but we see those over and over and over again in the Psalms as David's natural outward expression of what is already going on in his heart, which is worship. I know as Baptists it's difficult for us to always raise our hands, right? Especially if you grew up Baptist like I did. And there is no compulsion to do so. However, we should let the inner worship that takes place in our souls come out every now and then at least, right? It is pleasing to the Lord, and that's what David is showing us here. The only way we can worship in the wilderness is if God is our greatest desire. So prayer is driven by my desire for God. Prayer is a form of worship. And thirdly, we see that prayer is belief that only God can satisfy. In verse 5, David writes, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. I'm going to kind of park here at verse 5 because this kind of gets to the heart of our theme of worship. When you and I pursue something other than God to satisfy us, we are failing to worship God with our lives. When we pursue that which we know is wrong, why, why do we do that? Why do we fall into sin? Because we, we are all tempted by sin because sin promises us some form, at some level, some type of happiness, right? Some type of pleasure, some type of thing that we feel like we can't get otherwise. And of course, the things that the world offers can offer temporary enjoyment, Temporary pleasure, temporary success, but again, we all know that that is empty. I was growing up in Chicago. My dad was a pastor, and one Saturday we were talking with a, a man that lived pretty close to our church in the neighborhood, 
and uh, we were talking with him, and my dad was trying to share the gospel, and he kind of stopped my dad kind of midway. He was like, look, man, I, I appreciate it, but I've got three cars in the garage. I've got a big house. I've got a big boat. I've got a beautiful wife, great kids, a great job. What does Jesus have to offer me that I don't already have? I was a teenager. I was like, dang, I can't believe he just said that. Of course, we know as, as Christians, right, like it's eternal life, it's Jesus, it's salvation, it's all these awesome things that God wants to give you. But he had kind of said, maybe in a more blunt way, but what we all say when we pursue the things of the world over the things of God. What does Jesus really have to offer me that I can't get somewhere else? And we settle for these cheap imitations. And yeah, that guy had some great cars, but is that going to satisfy him in the long run? No. That guy had a great boat. What's that going to do for his soul? Right? His kids will grow up someday and leave the house, right? What happens then? What happens when that job lays him off? Only God is eternal. Only God offers eternal satisfaction for our souls. You know, the world wants us to believe, and it really works hard to convince us every single day that serving God is somehow less. You know what, if, if you follow Jesus, you'll have less satisfaction. You'll have less fun. You'll have less enjoyment. You'll have less pleasure, right? That's what we're being told all of the time, right? You guys are all missing out because you have all these rules and regulations as Christians, right? But they don't know something, do they? That Jesus, God, is the ultimate source of pleasure and satisfaction that any of us can ever attain or experience. Why? Because that's how you and I were created. You are created to only find your ultimate satisfaction in God himself. You will not find it seeking it somewhere else. Yes, there will be temporary fun, temporary, but God wants more than that. God wants eternal. God wants to give you that which will never run dry, regardless of your circumstance. That's what God wants for us. As C.S. Lewis puts it, God in the Psalms, he is the all-satisfying object. He's the all-satisfying object. As long as you believe the lie that God offers less instead of more, you won't be able to go all in with following Jesus. As long as you believe that you're somehow missing out by following God, you won't be able to give your life fully over to him. Why is it that believers over the course of human history have given their lives, they've given up their jobs, they've given up their family relationships, they've given up all these things to follow God? Why? Because they know that Jesus is worth more than all those other things combined. But we can only follow their steps if we ourselves believe that. If we ourselves know in our bones that Jesus is better than anything this world could ever possibly offer me. Until we believe that, we won't be able to really be all in for Jesus. And I wonder if that's why over and over again, God allows us and he leads us into wilderness experiences in our lives. I think God wants to continually break us of our love for this world. He wants to continually disenchant us with the things that this life has to offer. Sometimes God allows you to get that promotion or he allows you to get that car or he allows you to get that boat or whatever it is and he gives it to you only so that you can then say, huh, it really isn't that great. It really doesn't satisfy my soul. It really doesn't give me that oomph that I was looking for. 
right? God allows us or to go through the hard times to say, you know what? The things that I do have, they're not what I need right now. What I need is Jesus. What I need is God. Only God can help me through this situation. Only God can give me what I need to survive in this season of life. That's why God continually drives us, I think, into the wilderness because he wants us to be broken of our desires for this world because otherwise we would believe the lie that the best there is to have is right now. The best there is to ever achieve is right now here in this life. Jesus says in first, or rather John writes in 1 John 2, he says, do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of the Lord will abide forever. That's what God wants for you. Everything that this world has to offer, it's passing away. It's temporary. It's empty. It's a wilderness. What God offers us is abundance, life, salvation, eternal. So when we spend time with God in prayer, we are showing that we believe We truly believe that only God can satisfy our souls. So why are you here this morning? And this time I mean, why are you here at church? Why why are we here as as a church? I pray that's not just because this is what we've always done. I pray that's not just because this is something that we know that we're supposed to do. This is our, our Christian duty to show up at 9.30 every Sunday morning. Your walk with God, your relationship with God, will will never thrive in an atmosphere that's characterized by duty, by obligation, by religious exercise. When worship is reduced to a duty, it ceases to exist. Right? Worship is from the heart. Worship is love. Worship is passion. David in the wilderness isn't like, oh, you know what? It's that time of day, guys. I know we're on the run from Absalom. I got to kneel down and say my prayers real quick. No. David is passionately, desperately desiring God, pursuing him with everything that he has. That's what worship is. Someone said that it is a mark of spiritual barrenness in the church. When people come to worship to fulfill a duty and to keep a habit rather than to satisfy an appetite. It's a mark of spiritual barrenness when we go through the religious motions without the genuine hunger and thirst for God that only God can satisfy. That's why I asked, why are you here this morning? Why do we gather? I pray that it's not just because this is what we always do. I pray that it's because you and I are here desperately seeking the person and presence of God himself to change us, to use us, to fill us. Otherwise, this gathering is just to make ourselves feel good. If God's not here, if if the point is not to get more of God, then, then what are we doing here, right? The purpose of us gathering today is because we have a heart, hunger, and thirst that only God himself can fill. Only God himself can satisfy. That is why we gather together as a body. we, We don't need a more convincing argument as far as why we should pray more. I don't think there's anyone in here that would say, you know what, I, I pray plenty, I pray enough, I don't need more prayer in my life. We all know that we, we should pray and we should pray more. We all know that. So, so then why don't we? Why don't I pray more than I do? It's because I am not hungry enough. 
I'm not thirsty enough. You, know, you, you can make all of the logistical changes in your life that you need to and should to make prayer a priority, but prayer will never be a true priority for you or for me until we ask God to create in us this burning hunger and thirst and desire that only he can fill. Because when that thirst is there, when that hunger is there, no one has to twist my arm to pray. No one has to force me, you know what, Nathan, you really should pray before you walk out the door this morning. It comes natural. It's what I want to do. And I've experienced that in my life before, but I'll confess it's not an everyday thing for me. Maybe you're the same way. So today, as we look at Psalm 63, this example of David, a man after God's own heart, he's showing us the way. He's showing us what our prayer life should be like. He's showing us what worshiping God through prayer should be. It's not a duty. It's not an obligation. It's a burning passion and desire of our hearts because only God can fill that void. Only God can give us that satisfaction that we so desperately need. And so as God leads us into these wilderness experiences, we can either choose to view these wilderness experiences as a curse that drives us away from God, or like David, we can view this wilderness as an invitation. Say, God, you know what? I need you. God, I'm hungry for you. God, I am thirsty for you. I'm going to lean into you more now than I ever have in my life. That is why God allows you to go through difficult circumstances. That's why God allows suffering into the life of, of a believer. Not because he's cruel, not because he doesn't care, but because he loves us so much that he doesn't want us to be so wrapped up in the empty promises of this world. He wants our souls to be satisfied in the person and work of Jesus. And so every day you and I are confronted with the question, what will I worship today? What will I value and treasure the most? Will it be Christ or will it be my job, my kids, safety, security, whatever that thing is in your life, you know what it is. But you, have, you and I have that choice every single day when we get up. What will I worship today? And David, a man after God's own heart, shows us the way. You know, if, if we want to be used by God to make disciples here in Fort Worth, the key is not going to be inviting more people to join us to take part in religious duty and religious ritual. That's not going to reach anybody. The key to reaching our community, the key to sharing the gospel with those who need to hear Christ is to invite them to come in and find the satisfaction for their souls that they are looking for. Because again, we understand as believers, as people, we are created with that God-shaped void in our life. Only God can fill that. Every single person has that. Regardless of your upbringing, background, ethnicity, God created all of us for the same fundamental purpose to worship him. That is what we're going to reach this community with. That realization that they can find genuine joy, genuine satisfaction in God that they cannot find anywhere else. They can't find it in their cars or their homes or their boats or their job or their marriage. They can only find it in Christ. That is what we have to offer. We have to offer Christ himself. That's how we're going to reach the world. Not by saying, hey, come join us in a religious service. Come and join us as we worship the king. Come and join us as our souls are satisfied by our Savior. So though you may be surrounded by a desert this morning, there doesn't have to be a desert in your soul. Though you may be going through the wilderness, God still is calling you to worship. The only way we can worship in the wilderness is if God is our greatest desire. So as Stephen comes up and we prepare to sing, all of us have souls that need satisfied. So where do you go 
to satisfy your soul? What is it that you really love, that you really treasure, that you really desire? For some of you this morning, this is a totally new concept. You've never had any experience with what David has talked about here. You might be saying, Nathan, I've been going through the wilderness, I feel like, my whole life. I've gone from one experience to another, one high to another, one relationship to another, one career to another, always coming up empty-handed, always coming up unsatisfied. If that's you, then God is offering you something better today. If you feel that God is calling you, don't ignore that call. The sin that you and I have pursued, the sin that we've loved, the sin that we've desired, God says that that sin has separated us from his love. And because of that sin, the Bible says that we are worthy of his judgment. But God loved us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die for us. Maybe you've heard that verse, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Love. That's what drove God to send Christ to the cross to save you and I from our sins. It wasn't duty. It wasn't obligation. It was love. That's what God is calling us to this morning. The Bible calls us to repent, to turn away from our sins and turn to Jesus and believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as the only means of our salvation. God has promised that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what God is offering to you this morning if you realize that your soul has never been satisfied. You've never drunk from the water that Christ offers. Instead, you've been going to all what the Bible calls broken wells, things that are empty, things that are dry, things that aren't true. God is offering you himself today. And in a moment, I will walk through you, through a prayer with you. But for my brothers and sisters here today, my church family, we still struggle with this, don't we? Are you treasuring God above everything else in your life? Is Jesus your supreme desire, your supreme passion, the supreme pursuit of everything that you do in your life? Are you seeking God with urgency? Or is prayer more of just an optional add-on in your life? You know, this is a continual fight. None of us in here are perfectly pursuing God. I'm frustrated by the amount of time I find my own heart distracted, divided in its affections. How oftentimes I'm pulled to love the things of the world instead of God. Well, this morning, let's not be content with a mere head knowledge that, yes, I know Jesus is better. Yes, I know I need to pursue him. God's calling us to come before him and repent and worship and ask him to increase our desire for him in our hearts. That is a prayer that God will honor. That is a prayer that God will answer. If you look in your heart, like I've looked in mine this last week preparing for this message, message and realized there have been many things that have tried to take God's place in my heart. God's offering us a chance to make that right. God's offering us an opportunity to say, God, I want you to be the greatest desire, passion of my life. Please make that a reality in me. So like I said before, there's no magic or formula to this, but in Psalm 63, David raises his hands in prayer. So however God's speaking to you today with your heads bowed and eyes closed, either stay where you're seated or come to the altar, but again, I know we're Baptists, but if God is speaking to you today, I'm gonna ask that you join me and you raise your hands in prayer. If you feel like God is speaking to you, God is leading you, 
Again, this is an outward expression of an inward reality. We pray for those of you who want to accept Christ today. You can just simply pray right there in your seats. Say, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you have pursued me and that you love me, even though I don't deserve it. And Jesus, the best way I know how, I turn away from my sins and I turn to you and I ask that you would forgive me. Thank you for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Help me to love you with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind. In Jesus' name, amen. From brothers and sisters in Christ, if I could pray for you. Father, thank you for this chance that you've given us to see your glory in Psalm 63. That you are the all-satisfying object of our lives. And Father, I confess that my heart has been divided. I confess that the things of this world have distracted me from pursuing you with 100% of my being. But Father, as we read Psalm 63, Lord, my heart is moved. I want to be a man after your own heart like David. I believe I speak for our church when we say we want to be a people that don't attend church out of duty, out of desire. Father, I ask that you would make yourself the greatest desire, pursuit, and passion of our hearts. May we, like David, hunger and thirst for you for the rest of our life. Pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.